Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. It's been quite a month for the global climate. We had what's estimated to have been the hottest June on record, in records that go back to 1979. And we've also had several individual days recently that again have been the hottest on record. That's again from a series that goes back for global temperatures to 1979. But the estimates suggest that in fact, these have been the hottest days on Earth for at least 115,000 years. So we are very vividly, it seems, seeing the impact of climate change as it's affecting us right now. On today's show, though, we're not really going to be talking about the energy transition in terms of climate change and cutting emissions and everything connected to that. We're going to be thinking about it in terms of two other issues that are also hugely important. And I think it's fair to say in terms of what policymakers have been thinking and doing with respect to the energy transition in the past couple of years or so have actually been more important. Those issues are economic development and the way that clean energy can create jobs and also energy security. And to have that conversation, I'm delighted to be joined again by Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Doing well, Ed. And I'm loving these topics we have picked out today. As you know, I just got back from China where I was at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting of new champions. So top of mind, every single thing you list listed. Looking forward to it. Very keen to hear more about that. And as you say, China is going to be a very important part of the discussion we're having today. It's also a pleasure to welcome back Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy, how are you? I am great. Just back from a vacation. So super rested. Excellent. Looking forward very much to our discussion then. And thanks again, both of you, for joining us today. So the reason I wanted to talk about these issues of economic development and energy security is particularly because of seeing President Joe Biden talk last week about his industrial strategy. The president is trying to do something which seems to be quite unusual for presidents while they're sitting, which is establish a brand for his economic policy. He's calling it Bidenomics. We had Reaganomics, of course. We had Clintonomics. There was an attempt to create a brand for Trumponomics. I don't think that was hugely successful, but definitely people tried. Usually those names are created by other people, but President Biden is trying to make Bidenomics happen himself. And as he talks about that economic strategy, energy is right at the heart of it. There was a statement from the White House last week. They were talking about it. They said, President Biden's economic agenda, Bidenomics, is growing the American economy from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down. And what they say about how they aim to do that is that they want to and this is a quote, they want to turn the climate crisis into an opportunity by creating good paying jobs in clean energy and lowering costs for families. And in fact, when President Biden talks these days about clean energy, he tends to focus really not at all on the climate issues, the need to cut emissions, but he talks about investment and he talks about jobs. And the main instrument that the US government has had for supporting that is, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act signed into law by President Biden about a year ago. That has this great array of tax breaks and other support for low carbon energy and does seem to be having a very significant impact on the energy industry in the US. And in particular, one of the things that the Inflation Reduction Act is aimed at doing is supporting investment in manufacturing in energy equipment in the US. So that's really where I want to start, Amy, and maybe come to you first on this, which is when you think about the Inflation Reduction Act and the impact it's having and what it's aiming to do in terms of creating these good, unionized often, well-paying, middle-class jobs in America, how successful do you think it is in doing that? Or what are the signs about how successful it's going to be in doing that? 
Well, I think it's really interesting because in the past, a lot of the money that went for ARA, which was the 2009 financial crisis federal spending, wound up in the pocket of solar developers and tech industry projects, whereas this really is going into manufacturing. And uh, there's a think tank called Atlas Public Policy. They did a study together with National Public Radio, and they say that the tally in 2022 alone, so up through the end of 2022, was $128 billion in factories for EVs, making the cars, making the batteries for the cars, and recycling the batteries. So I can tick off once we know. I was at the launch for Ford's new plant in Michigan that they're doing together with the Chinese battery company Cattle for a lithium iron phosphate battery. So guess what? No cobalt, all good. Uh, You got BMW with Envision AESC in South Carolina. You've got SK on of Korea with a plant in Georgia, GM and Samsung SDI in a new nickel-rich prismatic cylindrical cell plant. You got Volkswagen's Gigafactory in Ontario, Canada, still North America, and you have Stellantis in Indiana. So that those are just ticking off the ones we know. And then I've been particularly interested in what's happening in the recycling part. Because to me, that's really key. We've had a lot of shows about, are there going to be enough metals? And so you've got the $2 billion loan office extension of Redwood Materials for their Nevada recycling plant. And then you've got GM partnering with some recycling companies, Lycycle and Cerba Solutions. So we really do have some momentum, I think, in that space. But The big numbers that you hear in terms of for Bidenomics are really in semiconductors where, you know, the Treasury Department did an analysis and they show that a lot of the manufacturing that we're seeing is actually coming in semiconductor manufacturing and the sort of ecosystem that goes around semiconductors. And that, you know, Melissa and I will get into it. That could be a little bit more problematic than it sounds because the Chinese just said they're going to require a permit for exports of gallium and germanium. Um, And both of those metals, which are manufactured metals, they're not natural metals, are needed for semiconducting manufacturing. So we're trying to diversify. There's been this conflict between the United States and China over the control of uh, chip exports to the Chinese military or for something that might be a military application. So, you know, watch that space because it's a contended space and there's a lot of toing and froing in it. And I'll just say to Amy's points, if we back up for a minute and just think about, you know, okay, for electric vehicles, for all the different clean tech, let's baseline the conversation and what we're talking about when we talk about supply chains and manufacturing. So just at the high level, when we just look at, let's go with mineral demand, first step in this whole chain of things that we're talking about and we're going to go through today. If we look at the different scenarios where we were in 2020 compared to where we would be in 2040 in different scenarios, I know the IEA, they published that report talking about mineral demand and how even if we keep going like we're going now, we don't reach net zero by mid-century. You know, We just keep going like we're going with cheap technologies that are going into markets for a variety of reasons under established policies. 
we're looking at doubling demand for all of that minerals, you know, that we use and everything. If we go to sustainable development scenario, we're looking at a 4x increase. So doubling, we're doubling again. And then if we look at net zero by 2050, that scenario the IA has put out, we can debate all the individual technologies in there, but let's just pause and think about orders of magnitude. We're looking at a 6x increase by the IA's estimates and in, in what we need and the demand there. And going back to what the US is looking at is today, when we break down kind of where different critical minerals come from, when we look at copper, more than half comes from three countries. 40% comes from China. Another 10% comes from Chile. And the rest of that, you know, roughly 55, 57% comes from Japan. Lithium, nickel, cobalt, all the rare earth elements. The vast majority of them come from just a few countries. In the case of the rare earth elements, we're talking about almost 90% coming from China. And so there's a report that actually has come out just for anyone who wants to go deeper just on those numbers from the Aspen Institute um, in partnership with the center that I work at, the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia, that talks about, okay, what the U.S. is trying to do with the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think the headline conclusion, Ed, is the U.S. can't solve this challenge on its own. It can't do it. We need to think about trade and we need to think about where all this stuff's going to come from. And so when we talk about semiconductors, which we'll go into in a second, and when we talk about all these different components of the supply chains, all the different manufacturing pieces, the question is how much are we going to invest in? We're already investing a lot here in the U.S. And how much is really going to come down to strong trade relationships? Well, and I just add one more thing to that point, though, Melissa. So the EU for itself, for example, is considering a mandate that materials recovery is going to have to be 65% by 2025 and 70% by 2030. So really the question is, you know, we have a lot of waste in this country, and China has a lot of waste and solar panels and so forth. So the question really is, are we going to restructure completely how we think about these materials. Because McKinsey and others have other alternative studies that say a lot of this, McKinsey's projecting that metal collection and recovery is going to be a $95 billion a year industry in the next 10 or 20 years. So the question is, car makers are already starting to go in-house. Cattle, of course, is the Chinese always seem to be leading the way. Uh, they already have a majority stake in a recycler. The U.S. companies are moving in the same direction. You know, so the question is, how are we going to do this? You know, I talk sometimes to some of the big metals mining companies, they're going into recycling businesses and there's something called thrifting, like new term I learned, which is you're going to take and make the same battery with a lot less material. So being like an oil and gas original commodities person, right, and looking at gold and the dollar and writing about those things and how they trade in markets... I think when you do it just from a physical analysis point of view, it can't give you the whole story because markets are going to adjust and you're going to have these other different kinds of ways of addressing these same issues. I'm going to say two things before, Ed, we take you too far down the rabbit hole. Like Amy and I, we think about this stuff so much. So, But the last point I got to say on this is absolutely right, which is I don't think anyone's disputing we're going to need more and a lot more of a lot of different things to build the stuff we're trying to build. And that it's not just the raw materials, it's the whole supply chain, the manufacturing, where the semiconductor is coming from, where are all these battery cells coming from? Every step in the process matters. And what's the US role gonna be in that? And that's the question that we're trying to address with the Inflation Reduction Act to a certain degree. How much depends so much on these investments we're doing right now? Because to your point, Amy, 
we can set up a future where we just have increasing demand forever? <laughs> Question mark. I'm kind of joking, but not really. In the sense of annual demand just keeps going up. We recycle very little. It barely makes a dent. Or a more likely future is where, as you say, the value of this stuff becomes so high that there's an incentive to have recycling. And the question is, how close to a true circular economy do we get? And when do we get there? Do we actually create all of that systems to say, we brought in these materials, we brought in these cells, we brought in these this equipment. Now we're going to keep using it and extend its useful life through recycling. But Ed, back to you. <laughs> yeah, so I think this is a great rabbit hole to have gone down. And actually, it's, it's really interesting and important. And I do, in fact, want to dig into it a bit further. Because as I'm hearing you talking about this issue of materials and where they come from and how they're used, I'm feeling a little bit like I've got to be the defender then of Bidenomics in this discussion, in this sense. So if you look at the numbers, Amy came out with some numbers, I think, for 2022 in terms of investment in clean energy technologies in the US. The Department of Energy also recently put out some numbers, which I've got here. They say more than $100 billion for investment in batteries in the supply chain, more than $30 billion for investment in EVs and components, more than $9 billion for solar equipment, nearly $3.5 billion for offshore wind. These are large amounts of money, and they do definitely seem to be having a material impact in terms of expectations about the outlook for clean energy manufacturing in the US. There's one really striking little factoid that's been flying around, which I think is very important for people to look at, which is this number for manufacturing construction. This is activity in the construction sector for the manufacturing industry. So in other words, this is new factories being built. In the most recent data, that's been tracking at a rate of about $190 billion a year in the US. That is triple the average rate in the 2010s, which was about $60 billion a year. And that really does look like solid evidence that this US manufacturing upturn is underway. And as you say, it's kind of two things. It's certainly some of that is semiconductors, and a lot of it is also energy, and particularly clean energy technologies. So does seem like there's something happening. I've seen economists start to talk about a manufacturing investment super cycle, this big upturn coming. So you look at everything in that context and you think about Biden administration strategy and you think, well, actually, maybe they are going to succeed in building a US supply chain for these clean energy technologies, which until now have on a global scale largely been dominated by China. Certainly that's true of batteries and EVs and solar panels. But from what you're saying, hang on a bit, don't get too excited about this, because there's still going to be some of these crucial dependencies on imports in particular, because of the need to secure these critical minerals, as you say, copper. Melissa, you mentioned lithium, I guess, say it was another one, rare earths might be another, the gallium and germanium that uh, China's been seeking to exercise its influence over as a kind of a way to exert pressure on other countries around the world. So is the message really from you then that this attempt to be nationalistic in developing a domestic clean energy industry is kind of doomed to failure because you're always going to be reliant on these international supplies? So not at all. I think the difference is talking about scale. And what are we talking about when we talk about building out a lot of capacity in these supply chains in the U.S.? Amy, I mean, you ain't loving the numbers. I don't need to go through them again. What we're already seeing, and it's early days in terms of investments. They're big. We're going to have a bigger role here in the US, absolutely, in these supply chains. But the scale of what we're talking about to get to net zero, it's massive. 
And so to think that, okay, does success in building up jobs and building up manufacturing capacity and building up all that in the US, it's not the same as the US being 100% independent and doing it all itself. These are different things. And so having enough capacity that we can meet all of our critical needs if something tense happens, that's one conversation. Doing it all ourselves is a different one. And I think going back to just, you know, there's the Aspen Institute report that I mentioned that, you know, we wrote with them. It's saying, hey, we can't do it alone, but that doesn't mean we can't have a much bigger role, which is what I think this entire process with the IRA is doing. It's having us have a more substantial role. So we're not completely cut out of any step of this process. We do have some degree of control. Amy, does that sound about right? Is there anything in there that you'd want to pick apart? I mean, I think that's absolutely right, Melissa. And then I would make these sort of subtle distinctions in the following way. Okay, so given all the battery plants that have been announced and so forth, the estimates are that the U.S. is going to be able to have the supply of 10 to 13 million EVs a year, right? So that's, we don't sell that many new cars a year in the United States. And so, you know, that could make us a pretty independent car industry. But like you say, we're going to have to import certain components to do that. And then I, I kind of like to make the distinction when I think about these things as a professor, which is easy because I'm not the one investing billions of dollars, so not my problem, right? Is that I got some things that I need to worry about because I might be in a war and I have to have, you know, we have strategic stockpiles of certain critical metals, right? And we have things we stockpile. You know, we learned from COVID, our greatest ally could have a lockdown because of a pandemic or could have a tsunami because of a weather disaster condition, and I can't get materials from that supplier. And so I have to think about that strategically. So when I think about it strategically, to me, that's a two-pronged thing, right? There's the U.S. government, which needs to be thinking about it strategically from a defense department, emergency responders, you know, National Guard point of view. Do I have everything I need that I can make vehicles, that I can make equipment, that I can do machineries, that I have semiconductors to keep people in America safe and our allies safe? Okay, that's bucket one. And then bucket two is sort of citizens and companies. So if I'm a company and I'm manufacturing batteries, that's why I'm saying about these guys taking their recycling in-house, then I have to think about, well, the U.S. government's not going to go out there and make sure I have got cobalt. So the question is, what am I doing as an individual corporate leader or as a group of companies in an alliance together to make sure I have a diverse and secure supply chain? And that's really two different buckets. So to talk about Bidenomics and say that the Bidenomics has to cover every bucket for every company doing something totally wrong. The White House is not responsible for that. But are they doing the stuff they need to do to make sure that, you know, our borders and our our allies and our operations worldwide can be conducted? Yes, they are responsible for that. And that, in my opinion, is where the conflict with China comes. Because am I going to depend on China for things that are related to national security or not? And same for the Chinese. And I think we're having this very delicate negotiation with China about where each country feels they can trust each other. And there's a lot at stake. And I would say 
given the rhetoric on both sides, the rhetoric coming out of China and the rhetoric coming out of our Congress here in the United States, there's a lot of irresponsible talk, you know, in a world where supply chains are very messy. So we've been talking in quite broad terms about clean energy in general and the relationship between reliance on imports and the ability to build a domestic supply chain. Are there differences between specific sectors within that if you compare sort of batteries and solar and wind, whatever it might be? Are there some sectors where it's particularly important maybe to build a domestic supply chain and are there others that are less so and you can just think, well, actually, it's fine to rely on imports and we don't need to be self-sufficient in that particular technology? How do you think about that? Well, I think it really depends on what fuel is the Pentagon going to use, right? Are they going to all electric vehicles? How are they going to maintain that and where the metal's going to come from? I know magnets can be controversial. A lot of wind applications use magnets, but there are a lot of military applications that use magnets, and there's certain rare earth minerals that are connected to that construction. I don't know where Melissa falls down on this. I think some of the areas where it's the most sensitive technology is not actually in this metals world. Some of it really is in a sort of automation AI world where you have these dual use kinds of things and you have some surveillance states and here in the United States, we're trying to put guardrails around it. And, and that I think is you know a different kind of tricky area. So part of the challenge is to have an open market and an open economy for clean tech and have everybody sort of rowing in the same direction as climate change in a world where the United States wants to maintain or promote military superiority, and so does China. I go back to the numbers a lot on this one and say, if I look at an electric car, it requires around six times the mineral inputs of a conventional car. And it's also got different supply chains, you know, that we haven't invested in as much in particular when it comes to the battery that is in there. Um, when we talk about offshore wind, when we talk about, you know, replacing other types of power generation technologies, um, you know, we really start focusing in on, I think for offshore wind, it's something like 13 times more mineral resources than a gas-fired power plant is just one example. But I go back to saying, okay, lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, graphite, going through each one of those things, that list I just made right there, that's batteries all day long. Like, what do we need for batteries, you know, and how crucial are our batteries going to be? I would say like the geopolitics around this, the security concerns around this, all the different investments we make are done in a different lens than oil and then gas as we've done in the past. So I know we've highlighted on the show before, but it is a really important point where once I have a solar panel up, if a country decides to not send me anymore, that is a very, very different thing than saying we're not going to send you a fuel you need tomorrow. So strategic petroleum reserve saying we want a certain number of days of resource to keep trucks on the road and trucks moving, that is different because you know no one country can make the sun, which is the fuel source in the case of, of solar power, you know, go away. So I have the actual panels, I can keep them, but I can't get any more. That's different. And so the idea of if we keep some kind of manufacturing base, if we keep the IP, if we keep the skilled workforce, because these things are all really important, going to at least a certain degree, we could scale those up or perhaps more quickly. What's tricky is when we don't have that workforce, that IP, that equipment in our country already, or that we don't have access to it through our allies, these types of things. So these are just different kind of nuances when we talk about security concerns and you know how we're building all this out. So I think we know that, but it's just really important to highlight. When it comes to you know how I think through each of these things, it comes back to the speed at which we want to achieve an energy transition as well. And so you know if we don't have access to battery supply chains um, and we don't have access to the amount we want, 
we have two things that happen. We don't have the transition happen as quickly as we want it to. But also, and I think we should highlight this, and it's, it's beyond security, we're not actually reaping some of the benefits of the transition and keeping some of those benefits and economic benefits at home. So there's a security concern around this, but there's also the idea of economic benefits. A lot of cars are going to be made. A ton of batteries are going to be made. Who's going to benefit from that? Like what groups are going to benefit from that? So there's security, but also economic benefit and growth. And that's where some of the controversy comes from, because people are saying, hey, the United States is gearing up to make sure that Americans have those jobs and Americans have those benefits. And that is Bidenomics. But that means there's some other person out there in a country in sub-Saharan Africa or in Latin America somewhere that's not getting that job. And there's this whole energy transition fairness issue about whether, you know, Europe and the United States and China are going to go gung-ho in this competition and leave out half the globe from the manufacturing process. And when we look at who benefited from investments in the energy sector in the past and who's going to benefit moving forward, there's some big questions that are out there. And this is not just in the US, this is around the world. So I know, Ed, when I was in China, I was in a bunch of different conversations. It was saying, okay, who's benefited in the past and how have they benefited and what does that look like moving forward? So example one, we have an industrial facility in our town that makes this thing that can be easily retooled to make the things we need to go to net zero. Well, okay, in the past, I was willing to accept this much tax money actually going into local schools, or I was willing to accept this much investment in local infrastructure, roads, grid expansion, all this stuff. Moving forward, let's talk about profit sharing. Let's talk about how what percentage actually will stay here, how many people will be trained within the community for local jobs as opposed to importing workforces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So who's going to benefit? Who's going to receive those economic benefits? And I will say in the context of the World Economic Forum and a global conversation around how we think about trade and development and economic development, it's a really interesting dynamic of, okay, do you just go with the low cost wherever that is? And it's low cost for certain types of reasons. How do you balance that with security, consumer preferences, and the desire to reap those benefits from the transition? All those things are at play. And it was it was interesting. I'll just say that. It was a really interesting set of conversations. Yeah, I bet it must have been fascinating. So this is really then the issue that I want to get into next, which is this question of the attitude that different countries take to this exercise and the extent to which it is cooperative and the extent to which it's competitive. And Amy, to jump back to something you said, you said on climate change, we want the entire world, all the countries in the world to be rowing in the same direction. And that kind of obviously seems to make sense. Climate change is a global problem. It can only have global solutions. And yet, if you look at the trend, particularly in the last few years on this, it's been very much for different economies, different countries to pursue their own individual solutions, and in particular to push forward with what seem like these quite competitive models of the world. As you were saying, Melissa, everyone wants to secure for themselves the benefits of the transition to new low-carbon energy technologies. And that seems like it could fight against that cooperation that we also need for tackling climate change. I mean, we've been talking about China a bit, but it very much seems to be an issue in terms of relations between the US and Europe and with India, with Canada, with other parts of the world. On Europe, there was a story I just noticed in Politico recently. All right, so this is, a, this is a headline from Politico last week. Biden's hydrogen bombshell leaves Europe in the dust. And it's on a story about a company which is planning to invest in plants to make electrolyzers for making green hydrogen from water, and they're going to invest in the US instead of in Europe. And you could say hydrogen bombshell maybe is a tiny bit overdramatic, but still there is 
definitely a real issue there. And it is clear that there is a sort of a zero-sum aspect to this, that countries, economies are competing against each other to secure investment in these technologies for the future. That Politico story also had a fantastic quote from someone called Jorgo Chatsimokakis, who's the CEO of Hydrogen Europe, which is the European Hydrogen Industries Lobby Group. And he said this, dung beetles spend hours rolling up balls of dung to attract females. But there are some very smart dung beetles that just sit by the side and watch while others do the hard work. Then they shoot in, take the dung ball, take the girl, and run away with everything. That's Joe Biden. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? But you can see, you know, this is the way that people oh, are feeling man. about it in Europe, which is that, as I say, they're not cooperating with the US, they're competing against the US to get the investment, to make progress in these technologies. And they're not entirely wrong about that, are they? So question, Amy. Well, listen, listen. Yeah, go on. Go on. What do you think? What do you let's think? let's back up. Let's get let's again, let's again have some statistics, okay? You know, the Hydrogen Council, which is a global industrial entity, says that at the end of January 2023, North America only had 15% of total announced projects globally, and Europe is still leading, right? So with all his dung beetle analogies, you know, one little pinpoint does not mean the United States is about to dominate in hydrogen, but the electrolyzer race is a big one because I was speaking at an international conference a couple weeks ago and the Australians pulled me aside and told me they're going to have an electrolyzer, $1 per kilogram. And so I was like super impressed with that. But then when I was Googling some other thing about hydrogen, there's some American group that says they're going to get, or maybe it's the DOE roadmap or both, is for a dollar ten, right? So this question about the electrolyzers could be really game-changing. And unlike the lithium supply chain for EVs, the World Bank did a very interesting study where they concluded that really there's not going to be metals constraints, serious metal constraints for fuel cells and for the hydrogen economy. And so I think there's like a you know world domination and hydrogen contest out there because you get Chile, deeply invested in the international hydrogen supply chain. You've got Saudi Arabia wanting to clear itself in the hydrogen supply chain. You've got Europe already way ahead in the hydrogen game. You've got the Aussies, you know, we're launching in. And now the United States given tax credits to launch in. And it's really an interesting question because is hydrogen actually going to vehicles? I think no. I think this hydrogen is like a hard to abate heavy industry sector. So you have a giant amount of sort of talking about hydrogen competition. And it's not clear, are these guys killing themselves to provide hydrogen to steel plants? Like, what are they thinking? Dude, and I got to remember the dung beetles. This is happening yet. <laughs> Amy, be prepared. So take the girl and run away with everything. What does that mean? Okay. So I'm going to pivot for a second to say, great, we've made all these commitments, investments. Is it going to get built? These are big infrastructure projects. Are we going to build them? So um, I'm going to go Beyonce and say, you're going to put a ring on it? Like, are you going to actually marry this girl? Not just take the ball of dung and whatever else the Beatles do, but what's going to happen next? So it's one of those, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of commitments, but I'm going to believe it when something is built and then stuff is flowing because that's the point. It's not about commitments. It's about permitting it, finding the site, permitting it, 
getting the investment and getting that thing built so that it's then putting that hydrogen into the system. And this applies with everything else as well. So if you're investing in a car manufacturing plant, a part of a battery supply chain, part of the hydrogen supply chain, electrolyzers and other pieces of it, pipelines, et cetera, you got to be able to get it built. So we have set up a ton of incentives. We have not yet sorted out all of the other pieces of the equation that need to go in to get the investment actually spent on the thing and have the construction done. Right, point taken. But then stepping back from the specifics of dung beetles and and how smart they oh, really may be, <laughs> like we can go further. But but just as as a general principle, <laughs> the idea that yes. this is, I mean, to take green hydrogen just as one example, that the green hydrogen industry globally is a case of global competition, where countries are seeking to outdo each other, and everyone, if you will, does want to be the smart dung beetle. Is that the right way to view the world? And if so, is that a problem for ideas about global cooperation to address climate change? This is the debate for the ages, I think. And Amy, I'm going to start, but I really am curious of your perspectives on this, which is when is the right time to jump? So we make investments in early stage. We make investments in mid-stage. We streamline things for actual large-scale commercial deployment. Like when do you jump to have the best strategic position in the near and also the long term? So as we think about the near term and developing these industries, The IRA is a signal that we think now is the time to jump for a variety of reasons, including the urgency of climate change, but also where these technologies are for the U.S. to build up manufacturing capabilities. Like this is a strategic advantage for us if we move right now. There's security components to it, but there's also economic components to it, which we talked about earlier. And so I think there's going to be more than one passing of this. I got to look up dung beetles after this discussion, y'all. But, you know, the dung ball is going to be passed around in different ways, and there's going to be a lot of them. And it's going to be an idea of where are we shifting these things over time. And it's it's a moving target. It's not a one type of event. And the last point I'll just make really quickly is that we're making these moves in the United States today. How will Europe respond? How will different parts of Asia respond? How will the world respond? How will Africa develop as a response to this? You know, what are the different knock-on implications of this? So it's not, again, just one thing happening in isolation. So listen, the one thing we do know, right, from cooperative ventures like Mission Innovation is that when nations cooperate on research and development for these critical kinds of technologies, it can be unbelievably powerful. Sorry, just to jump in, what is Mission Innovation? So Mission Innovation was formed under the, during the Paris Accord, where a group of countries, uh, 24 plus countries, agreed to double their budgets in research and development for clean energy innovation. The United States was leading and kept its commitment. China was involved um, and other countries. And, you know, there's like a 10-year cycle. You know, by the time you first start doing this R&D and then you start to get towards something that could be commercialized. So it's if there are climate solutions that are on paper, we need to do it now. If, you know, as Melissa says, we're going to need these technologies by 2050, we need to get there. So again, I think it's always sort of an interesting question. Like everybody has the fantasy in America that they're going to do something in their garage and it's going to turn into a Fortune 500 company like Jeff Bezos did or J.B. Straubel. But how often does that really happen? And how more often is it that um, the federal government, whether it's a federal government in Europe or in China or in the United States, sponsors research and development for particular targeted technology, and then it goes through the process where eventually it makes it out into the commercial market. So we still have areas where 
international cooperation makes sense. I get it. There's some sensitive technologies where people feel reluctant to do that. I personally think a lot of these carbon sequestration technologies are ones where cooperation could be really, really productive and competition is really unnecessary. And public-private partnerships are important. That's an area that the United States and the Middle East and other parts of the world are really kind of trying to bring their companies into the federal system or international system. We have public money and private money trying to come up with these solutions. And hydrogen, in terms of the dung beetle analogy, there's a big debate. You know, are we early on hydrogen? Is it too really early to try to commercialize hydrogen? Maybe Shell would object to this characterization, but, you know, Shell was very early in Europe and maybe that was harder than they were expecting it to be. And so for some of these things that take big infrastructure, um, you can be too early. And then, you know, on the car thing, you know, what I would say is, you know, as a person who, like, teaches sustainability. Is this individual car ownership paradigm really going to sustain itself? Is it really sustainable? So when we talk about how many vehicles we need for every individual in the world to drive an electric car, does that actually make sense? You know, we really need to be thinking about personal transportation in a different way. But hydrogen, to me, is sort of an opportunity for long duration storage in northern climates or for hard to abate sector. And so to me, government intervention there is very important because it's not quite commercial on a cost basis right now uh, for any of those applications. And it takes governments to sort of build that out to get to the point that we're commercial to scale. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I definitely want to come back to the case for and against hydrogen in some real detail on a future show. For now, though, just getting back to this question of international competition and cooperation, as you say, Amy, it does really seem like there's some areas where international cooperation is really important. And I was very struck by seeing Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, talking about exactly this. Like you, Melissa, she was just in China. She was there over the past few days, and she was urging cooperation on climate change. And she talked about how the US and China are the two world's largest emitters of greenhouse gases, and also the two largest investors in renewable energy. So as she said, quote here, they have a joint responsibility and ability to lead the way. Fine. All sounds great. Except, of course, members of the Biden administration back home in the United States all the time are kind of projecting everything as a competition against China. And they're seeking to outdo China both for reasons of attracting investment and also for reasons of national security. And so it seems like very mixed messages coming out of the US administration. A lot of what they're trying to do is very explicitly to compete with China, not work with it. And it's very clear China is not happy about this, and you have some quite strong language coming out of China as well. I noticed a government spokesman the other day talking about what the US was doing in clean energy as it was attempting to contain and bring down China and developing countries as well. Again, to your point about where does the investment flow? Where are the jobs created? Is it in Europe? Is it in the US? Rather than in the developing world as we transition globally to lower carbon energy technologies. So it does seem that's a really fundamental tension that is unresolved and could still get worse, I think. And given what we've been saying and what you've been saying about how no country can completely go it alone 
and there are important gains to be had from international trade and important gains to be had from international cooperation, this seem, does seem like a real problem. I mean, Melissa, as you say, you've just been in China, you've been talking to a lot of people thinking about this. Do you think the US administration is getting the balance right? Perhaps have they gone too far in the nationalistic case, if you like, for clean energy investment? Should they be doing more that's cooperative and working with China on these issues? I think what I'd say, Ed, is I'd extend the conversation beyond the Biden administration and into all of our federal government representatives. I know when I was uh, doing testimony a few weeks ago at the Energy and Natural Resource Committee in the Senate, and you can see this on C-SPAN, you know, for those who want to watch the exciting recordings of it and the discussion, um, this was something that came up from multiple senators and it's on their constituents' minds. You know, what is the role of China in supplying critical components for things that we want to build and we want to use and have. And so the administration is walking a line and figuring out a balance. And you talked about Janet Yellen and, you know, we all saw the headlines come out about how, you know, the conversation is still open, which is good. I go back to something my grandmother always told me, like the real problems come when communication breaks down. When communication stops, you got big issues. So communication is key to anything. Keeping those doors open is huge. But it is not just the administration that is trying to find balance and all of this and is following a lot of different pressures in the system, um, the national security pressures, the economic development pressures, the pressures from their constituents and communities. So I would, I think the balance is, is well beyond just the Biden administration. It goes throughout the entire Hill. I have not been following any state level, like local community level discussions about this. I've been focused mostly on federal and it's throughout the whole thing. And I will say to the competition point, competition can be really good for getting movement hey, we want to win. That can be good in some circumstances if the idea is getting stuff done quickly and fast. But if it breaks down to a local, we are not part of a global community, the numbers tell us that that's really, really going to be bad for progress to achieve the scale and speed of the energy transition that we're discussing. Two, let's focus on the point of all of that. It's not about building a power plant. The point is about having healthy communities. It's about getting rid of the worst impacts of climate change. Like That's the point of all that. So it's a tough one, but it's not just Biden and his administration that are having to struggle with it and grapple with it. So let me just at least make this one point. At least we're discussing this and we're debating whether the GOP or some other senators are worried about the competition from China. Instead of saying there's no climate change and we shouldn't participate in the clean energy economy, even though it's going to be trillions of dollars of jobs and investment and sales and solutions to climate change. So a good thing. But let's remember, we competed with the car industry of Japan in the 70s and 80s, and everybody was worried about the U.S. car industry. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing for the United States to want to compete and have productive uh, sector and something that's going to be a growing market opportunity. I think where you get this sort of nuanced discussion is there are some people on Capitol Hill or elsewhere in the U.S. political system, both sides of the aisle, that think that if we really were to get this right, both in the semiconductors and in clean tech and other things, AI and so forth, uh, that we can contain China, not just their economy, we can contain China in general. So when we say, are we trying to contain China? I don't think that's the policy per se, but there are policy people who are talking about containing China, so much so that you've got some analysts out there 
predicting a fall in metals prices or a fall in oil prices because China's economy is going to be contained, right? So there's a little bit of a crystal ball element to this, like, where is the balance? And then I think we're coming off this experience of the first year of the Ukraine war, where European countries might have woke up in the morning and then the United States with them and thought, geez, we were really buying too many things from Russia, right? And so I think you have to make a distinction between what is a healthy competition between two major economies, the United States and China, United States and Japan, United States and EU, all of which happened before at peaceful times, pushing together the competition brings us greater solutions and better economic welfare, even for the global South, versus the sort of what do we take from the lessons of the Ukraine war and do we need to isolate strategic materials? Do we need to isolate who we trade with? Do we need to re-regionalize trade relationships? And if we did re-regionalize, as some people have advocated, could that be deleterious for world peace? Could that be bad for the global economy? Could that be bad for cooperating on climate change? And I think that that's something that needs to be more thoughtfully distinguished, that between just having healthy economic competition, which the United States has had with its allies for decades. I think it's a really important point you're making, Amy, because when we look at the energy transition, we want to achieve it on the timeframes we're talking about. There's going to be a lot of trade and a lot of cooperation. And there's going to be a lot of different folks investing in building electrolyzers, batteries, et cetera. And as you say, cooperation will help us do that faster. Also, something actually that Jason Bordoff, the director of our center, who I know you both know, and I talked about in a presentation we gave in the beta zone at the WEF meetings in Tianjin last week, which was talking about Social mobilization and the growing tensions between emerging and developing economies and wealthy developed economies and who have different levers they can pull. And as different parts of the world continue to develop, what their role is and what space they are given and what space they require it's a growing tension and we need to lean into that as well and really consider it. So you talk about these regional developments and we talk a lot about when it comes to, you know, what do we just do when we talked about hydrogen? We're talking about like Western Europe and the United States. What about Africa? What about emerging Asia? What about Latin America? Like what about all the other pieces of the world and how is trade going to happen and who's going to develop what where and what tools do they have? And so these dynamics can't be ignored. And so within the geopolitics discussion, I also think there's a parallel social movement discussion that is not just about responding to climate change, but is about economic development and access to opportunities. That is a fantastic point. And it's really important for everyone to think about, I think, and probably something we should talk about in more detail on the show, because it's such an important part of the general picture. We just about have to leave it there, I'm afraid. First, of course, as usual, we'll have our free electrons, individual personal items that people have brought in. Amy, what's yours? So mine is that I taught a class in global climate finance this semester, and we had a large unit on carbon offsets. And so I have been going deep down the rabbit hole of what is considered an acceptable carbon offset now and what isn't. And I can tell you, it is a complicated matter to learn and educate oneself about avoided carbon, carbon removal, additionality, and I have found it a great journey in understanding both 
the voluntary markets um, and how what companies do in the voluntary markets might actually depend on their belief of what they think is going to come in the future in the compliance markets. And we have a lot of uncertainty today. So that has been my sort of like I'm ruminating while I'm taking a shower or swimming laps, thinking about how we need to square that knot to get to a more positive relationship for carbon pricing. And when you did that deep dive, what did you find, do you think, when you got to the bottom of it in terms of the foundation of that market? Did it kind of reinforce your faith in carbon offsets or did it make you think the whole edifice is pretty shaky and not really to be relied on? Well, I think the market is volatile right now. But personally, you know, having spent the time looking at it, I do think it's a necessary tool. And I think that, as Melissa says, the difficulty to getting to net zero, I just feel we need to take more time and more attention to getting it right and making these definitions crystal clear and building a consensus around them, because I really do think we need to have this market. It needs to function. My personal opinion from studying the different markets is that the California experience has been somewhat cleaner in the compulsory space than some of the other markets that are operating. And so I do think it's possible. But I tell people, California had a team of science people who are in the department that make evaluations about what qualifies and what doesn't qualify. And I think that's where this uneasiness lies between who gets to be the arbiter and judge of the science around the underlying offsets, I think government really needs to square that knot. Yeah, that is very interesting and important, clearly, and would also be a great subject for a future show. Melissa, what's your for Electrum? So I won't do spoilers. I promise, Ed, I finished the water knife, though. So once Robbie Orvis is back, the three of us really need to talk through this and some of the very interesting policy questions that come up in it. Okay, that was almost a spoiler, but not quite. So I picked up this book, Recoding America. Have you seen this? No, don't know it. No. So it was referenced. I went to a, a meeting at CSIS that they hosted partnership with uh, WEF and the National Renewable Energy Lab. So uh, Doug Arendt was there and it was a really great discussion. And in the course of a chat, uh, this book came up and I'll just read a couple sentences. So just when we most need our government to work to decarbonize our infrastructure and the economy. So bringing back to the discussion today, we find it faltering. And it talks about how government has, at all levels, has limped into the digital age, offering online services that can feel even more cumbersome than the paperwork that preceded it, and widening the gap between policy outcomes we intend and what we get. And then it goes through in the preview, what we need is not more money or more tech. And then it talks about you know what we need to actually really do to recode the government and to move us into the digital age. So that's what I'm reading right now. And I will say, Amy, I'm glad I'm reading it after your book that you published on all of this AI, how the world is evolving. It's fascinating and important. And it's critical, I think, to understand these topics when it comes to the energy transition, how we move quickly. So more to come once I'm done reading it, but really, really fascinating. At the same time, I'm working through a series of reports that we're presenting at the UN in the next couple of days. Um, we meet with the Secretary General tomorrow morning to go through recommendations for regional cooperation as a part of the work I do as the Council of Engineers for the Energy Transition. And I will say those are, you need a whole show. We need a whole show to talk about the last point you made, Amy, about regional focuses and regional development. So at some point, let's do that. But that's what's on my desk right now. That's what I'm working through today. Yeah, that's fascinating. And looking forward to discussing that with you further. My free electron is something that I read 
couple of days ago, which I was really struck by from a slightly unlikely source. The Institute and Faculty of Actuaries in the UK might not sound like the most exciting reading, but they produced this new report in association with the University of Exeter on estimates of the potential cost of climate change that is, I think, really fascinating, really important report and well worth uh, everybody checking out. You can Google it. It's, it's free to download. And I think it's well worth seeking it out. They're looking at the models that financial institutions use to try and project potential costs of climate change. And what they're saying is there's a big disconnect between those models and what climate science is saying and what climate models are saying. And essentially their point is to say there's still an enormous amount that we don't understand about how climate change could play out. We have a pretty good handle on how the world is warming and why, but what the impacts of those could be in terms of various different effects still our projections come with huge uncertainties attached. And so they highlight things like potential issues with how much of the sea level is going to rise, what kind of heat stress impacts there are going to be. And they also talk about potential tipping points like loss of Arctic sea ice or the Greenland ice sheet, which could accelerate the pace of warming and lead to really catastrophic outcomes. And basically what they're saying is that these financial sector models are fine for projecting sort of steady incremental impacts from climate change potentially growing over time but they're very bad at looking at these risks and potentially really disastrous catastrophic outcomes and there's a great quote of Sandy Trust who used to be the head of the sustainability board for this group of actuaries and was the lead author of the report and he said in the context of climate change it's as if we're modeling the scenario of the Titanic hitting an iceberg but we're excluding from the impacts the possibility that the ship could sink it's critical we develop realistic downside scenarios that reflect the level of risk we face. I think that's just a really important insight that a lot of what we talk about when we talk about climate change, we are making projections as if we know what's going to happen. And a lot of the time we don't. And we should be thinking about the whole exercise of tackling climate change as an exercise in risk management and avoiding those potentially absolutely disastrous downside risks in particular. And as I say, from this very sober and serious institution, the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, it's great that we're getting that message and definitely, I think, something that everybody should be thinking about. So we do have to leave it there. Many thanks to you, Amy, for joining us today. Great to see you. And many thanks to you, Melissa. Thanks, Ed. Good to see you, Amy. Always great to chat with the two of y'all about all this. Just always want more time, but that's a good problem to have. Indeed it is. There's always next time, though. We'll be back again soon. Many thanks to our producers, Toby Biggins, Gilchrist, and Sam Nash. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas, for future shows, whatever it might be. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. We are proliferating across the platforms as well now. I'm also on Mastodon as at edcrooks at mastodon.energy. I'm now also on threads as at ed.crooks. And I'm on blue sky as at edcrooks.bsky.social. So many ways now for you to complain about things you don't like on this program. In the meantime, though, that's all from us today. But we will be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.